Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, July 21st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. RFK Jr. testifies before the House Weaponization Subcommittee. Protesters set fire to the Swedish embassy in Iraq. Russia continues retaliatory missile strikes on Odessa. Henry Kissinger meets with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Stanford's president resigns amid data manipulation controversies. Apple tests a new chatbot. The iPhone maker threatens to remove some applications from UK services. Netflix gains more new subscribers than expected. Alabama resumes executions. And a top U.S. college says it will end legacy admissions. In our first story, RFK Jr. testifies before the House Weaponization Subcommittee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NBC, Fox News, ABC News, The New York Post, and The Hill. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. testified before the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government on Thursday, defending himself against allegations of anti-Semitic remarks while calling out online censorship by big tech and his own party. House Republicans invited Kennedy to address the censorship and an alleged smear campaign by the Biden administration and corporate media. RFK Jr. says his ban from Instagram, which was allegedly for posting misinformation about vaccines, was orchestrated by the Biden administration. Democrats have long criticized RFK Jr. despite his family's legacy in the party. House Democrats tried to remove him from Thursday's hearing, saying Kennedy violated a House rule aimed at prohibiting defamatory or degrading testimony. Their bid, however, was unsuccessful. Earlier this week, Kennedy drew heat for claiming that Chinese people and Ashkenazi Jews were more immune to the effects of COVID than Caucasians and Black people, suggesting the disease could have been ethnically targeted, which caused 102 congressional Democrats to sign a letter opposing his appearance. Kennedy defended himself against allegations of anti-Semitism and promoting anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. He denounced the Democrats' bid to disinvite him as anti-free speech and said he doesn't, quote, believe there's a single person who signed this letter who believes I'm anti-Semitic. Democrats say that Kennedy has continuously promoted dangerous conspiracy theories about vaccines. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Democrat of Florida, called RFK's comment about COVID despicable, while Stacey Plaskett, Democrat of the Virgin Islands, says Kennedy's appearance was intended to attack Joe Biden and help Donald Trump's electoral chances. All right, Melissa, we have some diametrically posed political narratives on this story. Let's start with the Republican spin from Daily Caller. It's ironic how Democrats engaged in an all-out blitz to censor RFK Jr. during a hearing on censorship while having the nerve to claim they're not actively censoring dissent. The woke left has used the same smear tactics, calling their opponents racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, and other ists in order to stop them from speaking. They usually reserve their totalitarianism for conservatives, but now they're even branching out to silence anti-establishment members of their own party. The Rolling Stone brings us a Democratic narrative. RFK Jr., who has been intentionally spreading dangerous misinformation for years, should not be given the platform to continue doing so before the House of Representatives. 
Republicans should be ashamed that they invited him, especially after his recent comments, which added racism to his repertoire of problematic rhetoric. This is suspiciously convenient for the GOP. RFK Jr. is a, quote, Democrat running to the right of DeSantis and Trump, who has caught the eye of conservative operatives and donors. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 2% chance that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. will be elected U.S. president in 2024. I was listening to him on Lex Friedman, and it took, uh, it took a longer than I wanted to adjust to his voice. Yeah. Is that from drugs? He has explained that he had a nerve condition in the 90s that resulted from an injury, mm. and it caused a disorder in his uh, a disease in his vocal cords that are always being strained. And mm. he said he's not in pain. He's his voice is strong in so much as it exists, but it will always sound that way. And apparently he's had a bunch of uh, procedures to try to make it as good as he can. It is interesting, yeah. kind of like watching subtitles in a movie. Eventually it just kind of weirdly fades away and you can like watch a French movie with subtitles and then it doesn't affect you. Yeah. Right. But because uh, now I've, you know, RFK Jr. has been in a lot of media lately, so I've kind of haven't yeah. noticed his voice as much. But it is. I mean, it's striking. It, I'm sure it's the first question everybody has. Um, right. Especially in a job where your main job is <laughs> to say stuff. That's like right. the, the main, main thing. There's a lot of other policy stuff, but like kind of like getting up in front of people and saying stuff is uh Interesting. Yeah, I almost see key. it as a, a feature, not a bug. Like we've had enough eloquence with our presidents. Like let's just let's get a guy that will only say something if he absolutely <laughs> has to. Let's move, yeah. move on. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. You're absolutely right. It's a superficial thing that one can get past for sure. It's just yep. like yeah, you know those those initial thoughts of like God, could I listen to that guy's voice for four years? It's, it's like, a good okay, question. Well, of course, we would get past that if it was the right person. Well, especially it would not be an issue. Also on Lex Friedman, Benjamin Netanyahu was just on, and his voice struck me as like amazing. Like I, I, I oh yeah, he had an amazingly like like a strikingly he could do like voice acting. It sounded like almost, yeah, uh, almost. But uh, right, right. Um, I mean, know, it needs- yeah, it takes a little bit more than that. Anyway, <laughs> um, at least a, two a couple weekends uh, workshops. But anyway, we were talking the other day about how Hamilton must have been good when it came out because it was a questionably bad idea. Right. And if RFK gets elected despite this, then it will be because of major groundswell or major hitting a, uh, a nerve with his message or something, because he's not going to be able to church up his words to make them sound good. It's going to be right. what the content is. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll have to really hit a home it, run. It's, all, it's like a real it's an it's such an interesting thing because he also presents such a strong persona. You know, he's whatever, 68, 69, 70 years old, and yeah. he's kind of like jacked and yeah. uh not kind of jacked he is jacked and so like he presents this certain ideal of strength and he's a kennedy yeah. and he looks he kind of looks like you know he could be the president in air force one like the movie you know like he kind of mm. looks like what i feel like a president might look like yeah and obviously he's a kennedy he's got the you know he has all these different things and then there's this big Jenga block just pulled out of his arsenal, like literally his voice. So yeah. it's just so it almost makes him more compelling. But definitely, I mean, he even said in an interview I listened to, he can't listen to himself. Like he doesn't mm. ever go back and listen to his stuff. It's just like he, it's worse to him than it is to us. 
Well, if he if he wants to do voiceover, he's gonna have to start listening to himself. You know. Yeah, well, yeah, you got to listen to tape. You got <laughs> yeah, you got to put yourself down. Yeah, his voiceover career. I mean, they say you you know you want to have a unique voice, but in my experience, um, but like they mainly just want a voice that can sell for trucks. So right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and as a president, that's the requirement as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm hundred percent. Yeah. We're just yeah. trying to move, move merchandise just off the lot. That's the gets plan. Gets this merch going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he is a very interesting candidate to, to me. And, and it, maybe that's, that is more of a feature than a bug because it feels like there's so much of this PR that people have gotten really good at PR. Yep. Uh, God bless them. But can we strip that away and, 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 you know, see what's actually at the core and what the meat is of the platform. It gets so hard with all the noise to see that. So saying, okay, this voice isn't great. Let me remove that and see if it, there's anything deeper is appealing to me. And I, and, and I'm at the, I am at the, like the surface at the skin of the, of the onion about uh, knowledge on RFK Jr. Right. So I'm just starting to learn, but hearing him talk about like, like an American Royal basically. Right. And, yep. and being watching his uncle and his father and everyone uh, deal with the things they did uh, as he was growing up is, is a really interesting perspective uh, and one that not a lot of people got. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and as far as someone who is, is pro Democrat, you could do worse than having Biden have to overcome this obstacle to kind of, kind of get ready for then another unorthodox mm. candidate in what looks like it could be Trump in the in the general election. Um, you know, if you can't debate with RFK with his voice being what it is and him being kind of a fringe candidate, then, yeah. you, you know, you kind of got to get through him to get through Trump, it feels like. And it'll be a, in the end, if if Biden was to win mm. a second term, I think he'd be better off for having RFK as an opponent in the primary than without. Uh, a trial run, right? Yeah. Protesters set fire to the Swedish embassy in Iraq. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Independent, Sky News, DW, The Evening Standard, and The Guardian. Iraqi protesters, reportedly angered by Quran burnings in Sweden, stormed and set fire to the Swedish embassy in Baghdad early Thursday. Videos posted on social media show protesters climbing over the embassy's fence, waving flags and signs supporting the Iraqi Shiite cleric and political leader Muqtada Sadir. The development comes after Sweden approved another demonstration application outside the Iraqi embassy in Stockholm, where a copy of the Quran and the Iraq flag were expected to be burnt. Condemning the attack as a violation of the Vienna Convention, the Swedish embassy announced that it had closed to visitors, adding that all staff members were safe. Meanwhile, the Iraqi foreign ministry said it would take the necessary security measures and undergo an urgent investigation to identify the perpetrators and hold them accountable. However, Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani directed the Swedish ambassador to leave the country, reportedly because Sweden permitted Quran burning. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll begin this round of narrative spins with a narrative A from the Jerusalem Post. While freedom of expression is sacred, it must be balanced against the destruction of public peace caused by burning religious texts. Regardless of religion or intention, Swedish authorities must make the right decision and end the diplomatic chaos caused by their acceptance of controversial behavior. And Freya Teeter brings us Narrative B. The overwhelming majority of Swedes are not against banning the burning of religious texts such as the Quran. However, the reality remains clear that multiculturalism has failed in Sweden. 
The issue is not a lack of understanding of Swedish culture, but an apparent refusal to conform and cooperate with the country's way of life. The sooner the government accepts this reality and reacts accordingly, the better. Narrative C comes from the Boston Globe. Burning the Koran may not be morally correct, but that doesn't mean it should be banned. Sweden and all free societies must protect the ability to express even contemptible ideas and actions. Burning religious texts should be both protected by the government and denounced by citizens for the sake of free speech and civil society. And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 95% chance that Sweden will join NATO before 2024. Russia continues retaliatory missile strikes on Odessa. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press. TASS, Ukranska Pravda, The Washington Post, and Anadolu Agency. For the third night in a row, Russia launched a wave of missiles and drones at the port city of Odessa in Ukraine's south in the early hours of Thursday. At least two civilians were killed. Ola Kipper, the region's governor, said that Ukrainian air defenses destroyed all 12 drones and two caliber missiles deployed by Russia. However, he said that other types of missiles, namely the X-22 and Onyx types, were able to get through. A spokesman for Russia's defense ministry said the attack was continued retaliation for a Ukrainian attack on the Kursh Bridge in Crimea earlier this week. Last night, the Russian armed forces continued delivering retaliatory strikes by seaborne and air-launched high-precision weapons against the production workshops and storage sites of drone boats in the Odessa region, the spokesman said. He added that fuel and ammunition depots in the Mykolaiv region were also destroyed. The claims could not be independently confirmed. Elsewhere, according to a report in the Washington Post, to break up Russia's well-fortified defenses in southern Ukraine, Ukraine has begun firing cluster bombs against Russian forces, which have been included in the latest military aid package announced by the U.S. earlier this month. The weapon outlawed in more than 120 countries is controversial because it disperses hundreds of smaller bomblets that explode over an area larger than a football field, inflicting a heavy death toll on civilians. Bomblets can also remain unexploded in the civilian population for a long time, exploding years later after being disturbed. All right, we have a pro-Ukraine narrative from Ukraine Form. Russia continues attempting to destroy the lifeblood of Ukraine, launching yet another terrorist attack that kills civilians and destroys civilian infrastructure. Ukraine's will to withstand and defeat this evil will not be conquered. The pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. This Russian attack was retaliation for Ukraine's terror attacks on the Kursh Bridge in Crimea. It struck the military base and equipment responsible for launching the Ukrainian attack. And the prediction community at Metaculus forecasts there's a 10% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Uh, Melissa, those cluster bombs sound a lot like a weapon of mass destruction to me. I don't know where someone draws the line, but that's not a little bit of destruction. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, and it's not one target, right? It just is going to scatter out. Um, and it adds in the landmine effect. The the yeah. leftover bombs create an unlivable landmine situation. So it's kind of like the worst of both worlds. It's, you know, like a huge ex bomb explosion is horrible, but it's over. Right. And then 
landmines are kind of benign in that no one gets killed at first, but then forever you're, you're screwed. This is yeah. both. We've figured out a way to have it be both. I feel like there, there's been in recent years or in recent decades kind of an, uh, an unveiling of how awful these, you know, old landmines are. Yeah. How dangerous. And that, well, that was Lady Di or Princess Diana's like big thing was getting the uh, land, like banning landmines and getting them out. Yeah. And we're uh, we're just not learning, though. We're just. Yeah. As humans repeating the same mistakes. Well, also, I believe we reported here that Russia said, don't use those or we'll use them as well because we also have them. And then the next day, Ukraine has used them. So I would imagine that tomorrow we're going to read in the same space that they've been used the other direction. Yeah. Unless they're way on the back shelf in Russia somewhere, but we're going to see them soon. You know, someone's got, yeah, someone's back there. Dad's got to read. Dad's got to get the stepladder. You know, they're they're way back there, but they're going to get him. Henry Kissinger meets with Z in a surprise Beijing visit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, The Wall Street Journal and Reuters. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger made a surprise visit to Beijing this week, where he met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on Thursday. Earlier this week, he met with diplomat Wang Yi and defense minister Li Shang-Fu. Xi referred to Kissinger as an old friend during their meeting at the Daiyuatai State Guesthouse, a more intimate venue than is used for greeting dignitaries. Kissinger is highly respected in China for his role in normalizing U.S.-China relations in the 1970s. The meetings with Wang Yi and Li Shang-Fu emphasized the need for peaceful coexistence with the U.S., according to reports with Kissinger being quoted as saying he is a friend of China. The 100-year-old statesman has visited China more than 100 times, last meeting with Xi in 2019. While it is unknown what the two discussed, media accounts report that Kissinger emphasized the importance of the One China principle, referring to Beijing's claim over self-ruling Taiwan. President Biden's Taiwan policy has routinely raised the ire of Beijing. A succession of high-profile Americans have visited China in recent months to help restore damaged relations between the two countries. Former Secretary of State John Kerry was rebuffed by Xi during his Chinese trip this week, while U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was unable to secure a visit with his Chinese counterpart Li Shang-Fu earlier this year. Chinese state media quotes Kissinger as saying that the U.S.-China relationship is a matter of world peace, with Xi saying China was willing to discuss ways to improve the relationship. Washington has said that Kissinger's trip was a private visit. Those were the facts. Here are the narrative spins. We'll start with the pro-China narrative from Xinhua. The warm reception China has given Kissinger is a reminder that China is willing to engage with anyone engaging with the PRC in good faith. Kissinger played an indispensable role in China-U.S. relations, and his presence will always be welcomed in China. The U.S. must engage with China based on principles of respect and mutual recognition, which it has thus far failed to do. Kissinger has long been a champion of the One China policy. And Fox News brings us the anti-China narrative. China reaching out to Kissinger is a sign of desperation, as Beijing turns to a centenarian diplomat to try and shore up its shrinking credibility on the world stage. Kissinger's influence in Washington is much diminished compared to earlier years, and his pleas for striking a conciliatory path with China may fall flat. Amidst a trend of global hesitance about China, this effort was a last-ditch attempt to restore goodwill with the U.S. 
And the nerds at the Metaculous Prediction community have given us a narrative. This one says there's a 19% chance there will be a U.S.-China war before 2035. I just looked it up. Kissinger is 100 years old. He started his traveling. He started walking there 40 years ago and he finally arrived. Uh, he's the, he made it like he thinks he thinks they were talking about the Korean War still. Like it's just oh, uh, yeah. it takes him a while to get places. Yeah, we got to get him one of those one wheels. <laughs> my, my brother has one of those. Pretty sweet. <laughs> cool. uh, if you can if you can ride it, then you can ride it anywhere. But if you yeah. can't ride it, you can't ride it anywhere. That's right. That's the thing. Stanford University's president will resign amid research controversies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, BBC News, The Washington Post, CBS, and NBC. Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine announced Wednesday that he would step down from his post after an independent investigation found serious shortcomings in research he supervised. The panel, however, cleared Tessier-Levine of charges of scientific fraud and misconduct. The investigation found that labs run by Tessier-Levine engaged in repeated data manipulation. While Tessier-Levine wasn't personally implicated in data manipulation, papers he co-authored were determined to have, quote, serious flaws. Stanford's student newspaper, the Stanford Daily, published allegations in December that a research journal had raised concerns about a 2008 paper Tessier-Levine co-authored. Their most serious accusation was that Tessier Levine stopped issues with an Alzheimer's research paper from becoming public. While the report cleared the neuroscientist of misconduct charges in the 2009 paper on Alzheimer's, the panels found various errors and shortcomings in the paper. The panel found that Tessier Levine wasn't aware of the flaws in the paper. The report concluded that five papers in which Tessier Levine was listed as an author had manipulated data or deficient scientific practices, and that Tessier Levine had failed to take appropriate steps to correct the errors made. In a statement, he said that while he was cleared of the most serious accusations, he will be resigning from his post, quote, for the good of the university, effective August 31st, ending his seven-year tenure. He will remain at Stanford as a tenured professor. The journal Science brings us Narrative A. While the report does find fault in some research that he had supervised, Tessier Levine is still one of the foremost experts in his field. This investigation is proof that academia is working as intended, as the indispensable tool of peer review helped uncover flaws in the research. While Tessier Levine may have been lax in his lab, he isn't a fraudster and is showing his integrity by stepping down to avoid further distractions, despite being exonerated. And the New York Times has narrative B. Data manipulation, especially manipulation of images, has become endemic in science. By manipulating data, researchers poison the well-being of science as others build on their fraudulent work. The stifling and cliquish world of academia can create environments where sloppy work is passed off and where it can be career suicide to question it. Tessier Levine should have known better, as manipulation of data puts the entire scientific method in jeopardy. Apple is testing AI tools to compete with OpenAI. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Decrypt, Al Jazeera, CNBC, TechCrunch, The New York Post, and Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg News reported on Wednesday, citing people familiar with the matter that Apple has built its own framework to create large language models and is testing a chatbot service that essentially replicates Google's BARD and OpenAI's ChatGPT. According to the report, the new app, which summarizes text and answers questions based on data it had been trained with, has been used internally to assist with product prototyping, and the tech giant has no current plans to make it available to consumers. As the report broke out, the company's shares popped briefly, as these developments signal that Apple is taking recent advances in artificial intelligence seriously and is considering incorporating them into future products. Another indication that the iPhone maker is seeking to progress in the field is that it has posted a handful of job postings on its career page, seeking engineers with a robust understanding of LLMs and generative AI. Though they've pushed advanced AI in some of their products recently, Apple has been lagging behind rivals in incorporating the breakthrough technology, even failing to mention it at its developer conference last month. Apple's AI suite has reportedly been worked on for months, with one of its targets being to address privacy implications, a key concern among Americans, according to a Pew Research poll conducted in 2022. Thank you, Scott. We'll begin this round with Narrative A from Dataconomy. The biggest tech giant in the world, Apple has both economic power and an enormous fan base. Therefore, it's evident that once the so-called Apple GPT goes live, it will revolutionize the generative AI chatbot market. One can only expect that this new tool will raise the bar for similar tools while attracting more interest and market investment to the technological race. And Narrative B comes from The Verge. Despite the reported advances, as well as the rumors that Apple will make an AI-related announcement next year, the company seems disoriented in relation to generative AI and machine learning development. While its rivals have quickly offered their own AI products, such as large language models, to businesses and the public, Apple still has no solid plans in the AI space. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one's saying there's, there's a 50% chance that OpenAI will make the GPT-4 model available for free ChatGPT users by April 2024. I think what's being lost here is that Apple having, you know, the market not cornered, but dominating the device market. If they just push an Apple AI app out to all their phones, it'll just be in everyone's face immediately. They don't even have to move first, it feels like. Right. This is kind of like Zuckerberg just just saying, uh, you know, go to threads. Right. You right. now have threads. Enjoy. You're in a right. very unique position. Yeah. If you have if you own the platform like that, then you can kind of wait and see what happens. I feel like now I'm not, you know, right. I don't know. Maybe 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 I'm breaking new ground here, but I think that's why they're fine kind of waiting in the weeds. Right. Let's wait. Wait until the yeah. Wait until the kinks get knocked out and then we'll launch the best one ever. And another Apple story where Apple warns of UK surveillance bill proposals. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Seeking Alpha, The Telegraph, The Guardian, and Apple Insider. Tech giant Apple has threatened to remove applications such as FaceTime and iMessage from its available UK services if the government applies proposals intended to update the 2016 Investigatory Powers Act, or IPA. Apple has joined Meta in its objection to what's known as the Online Safety Bill, which would allow the UK government to scan encrypted messages. The updated IPA would also allow the Home Office to demand security features of messaging services be immediately disabled without public notice. 
replacing the current system of a review and independent oversight process. Apple has stated that the legislation would be deeply troubling, adding that it could turn the home office into the world's regulator of security technology by issuing orders to companies based overseas. The company warned that, consequently, it would have to publicly withdraw critical security features from the UK market, otherwise being forced to secretly install vulnerabilities into security technology, a move Apple said it would never do. The online safety bill is believed by the UK government to be a viable option to scan for images of potential child abuse online. Apple did attempt to introduce on-device scanning of images to protect children by 2021, but the policy was shut down in December 2022. All right, thanks for that update, Melissa. Narrative A comes from the Washington Post. The UK's online safety bill is a mess. While the need for greater regulation to combat online child abuse is widely backed, the potential legislation is the product of the extreme wings of the ruling party that censors and attempts to extend governmental powers beyond its territorial borders. Narrative B, written by On the White. Recent public opinion polling shows that the UK overwhelmingly backs calls to strengthen the online safety bill's measures. The British public has a clear message to the government that the online safety of children is paramount, and the influence of big tech must be counteracted. Netflix gains subscribers after their password crackdown. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by The Guardian, Boston Herald, Variety, Business Plus, ABC News of Australia, and the Associated Press. Streaming giant Netflix added 5.9 million new subscribers in the second quarter, nearly three times as many as analysts had expected. The streaming giant secured these gains in tandem with a crackdown on password sharing among users. Investors had expected only 1.8 million subscribers. One investment analyst said that the password crackdown had supercharged the platform's user base. The company said in a letter to shareholders, we're seeing healthy conversion of borrower households into full-paying Netflix memberships, as well as uptake of our extra member feature. The price change helped Netflix boost its revenue by 3% for the period to $8.2 billion, falling below analyst expectations. The company earned $1.49 billion during Q2, compared with $1.44 billion last year. Earnings per share reportedly came in at $3.29, exceeding the average analyst estimate of $2.85 per share. Despite the positive growth figures, investors reacted negatively as Netflix stock price fell 8% in Wednesday trading, which could be related to the Hollywood strike in part. Meanwhile, Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos declined to pinpoint how long Netflix can keep releasing new series and films if the strike continues past Labor Day. The real point is we need to get this strike to a conclusion so we can continue to move forward, he said. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. And BBC News gives us a narrative A. Despite warnings that Netflix push to stop password sharing would result in mass cancellations, the company showed a bigger than expected growth for Q2. It added almost 6 million paying subscribers, which is quite a remarkable turnaround. Narrative B comes from TechCrunch. Netflix's continuous effort to stop password sharing could potentially hurt its competitive edge in various markets. In India, for example, Netflix faces stiff competition from Geo Cinema, which streams numerous popular shows and movies from NBC, HBO, and Warner Brothers. It is yet to be seen if the password sharing crackdown will ultimately be bad for business. 
Here's the nerd narrative from the Metaculus community. This one says there's a 50% chance that an original, wholly AI-generated feature film will rank number one on popular streaming services by January 2030. I, up until recently, shared a Netflix account with somebody else. I was the I was the leecher, not the leechee, and mm. it no longer works. They they got me. Uh oh. Yep. You know what you, you got to do is rotate them out, right? Get to Netflix, binge everything you want to watch, cancel it, get your HBO. Binge it. Well, maybe you keep HBO all the time because they always have good stuff. Yeah. Whatever. Go on to the go on to Hulu. Binge for a while. Move on, one at a time. You know, cycle through. Yeah, but I have no self discipline or ability to delay gratification at all. So I just need all of them whenever I feel like it all the time and waste mm, money. Mm. But I, they really get me. Like I will waste money to be like I don't want to watch these ads right now. This is the oh no 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 time. no no. I don't watch ads anymore. Yeah, uh, I think ads are something that I've moved beyond, and I do not appreciate them anymore. On, on an unrelated topic, this episode is brought to you by Netflix, your home <laughs> for streaming services such as The Crown and House of Cards. Netflix, the number one choice in streaming. If you'd like to click the link below, you'll get a special discount. Uh, hashtag ITN pod slash That's right. yes. Scott Wallace. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama will resume executions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, the Associated Press, NBC, CNN, Newsweek, and AL.com. Alabama is set to execute its first inmate since Governor Kay Ivey paused the practice to conduct an internal review after two lethal injections were canceled due to difficulties inserting IVs. James Barber is scheduled to receive the lethal injection Thursday night. The 64-year-old Barber has been on death row for nearly two decades for the 2001 robbery and murder of 75-year-old Dorothy Epps. The felon who knew Epps' daughter killed the woman with a claw hammer before fleeing with her purse. Barber has tried to appeal his death sentence, citing fears of substantial harm brought by a potentially botched lethal injection, but the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals denied his request. Barring a reprieve, Barber will be put to death at the William C. Holman Correctional Facility at 6 p.m. local time. Last fall, officials called off the executions of Kenneth Smith and Alan Miller after being unable to access their veins within time limits. Anti-death penalty advocates claim that a third execution was also botched and delayed, which the state disputes. Other groups have called for an independent review of its practices, which Governor Ivey has rejected. In a last-ditch effort, Barber's attorney asked the Supreme Court to stop his execution, citing the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Officials will have 30 hours to execute Barber, a six-hour extension from previous protocols. The Atlantic brings us the left narrative spin. After multiple botched attempts to execute inmates, Alabama is looking to redeem itself by killing James Barber despite clear questions about the state's protocols. The death penalty is a horrendous stain on America as is, but adding the horror of a potentially botched injection is appalling. Here's the right narrative from 1819 News. Capital punishment is reserved for the most heinous crimes, such as the one committed by James Barber. 
Governor Ivey and Alabama authorities have conducted a thorough review of the issues that used to plague the lethal injection methods of the state and implemented the appropriate reforms. There's no reason to delay this justice. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that capital punishment will be legal in at least 38.1% of U.S. states by 2035. Wesleyan University ends legacy admissions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, The Hill, The Independent, and The Washington Post. In a letter to the university community on Wednesday, Wesleyan University President Michael Roth announced that legacy preferences in admissions would be eliminated. The Middletown, Connecticut school becomes the latest institution to change its policies in recent years and comes in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's June decision to end race-based affirmative action in college decisions. In noting that connection to a Wesleyan graduate has little to do with determining whether an individual could succeed at the university, Roth wrote that the recent Supreme Court decision made it crucial for the school to formally end admission preference for legacy applicants. Wesleyan said it plans to promote a more diverse student body by seeking applicants from outside of U.S. cities and coastal areas, recruiting veterans, establishing ties with community colleges, and increasing financial aid. Wesleyan is a selective private liberal arts school, which had a 15.7% admission rate in 2023. Of those admitted as part of the class of 2027, 4% had a parent who graduated from the school. Thank you, Scott, for those final facts. We'll start with a progressive narrative from ABC News. If the Supreme Court can upend decades of precedent to eliminate race-based selection, then certainly the courts and the schools can see how legacy preference, which overwhelmingly favors white applicants and gives a leg up to the wealthy over people from marginalized communities, should be abolished. Legacy preference is a large part of structural racism in the U.S. And the conservative narrative comes from Forbes. Legacy preference in college admissions is necessary for the survival of the institutions that use them. Not only are legacy applicants more likely to enroll in the school, making for a smooth and certain admissions process, but they're also more likely to become donors who contribute to the endowments that keep private schools afloat. Whereas affirmative action had little benefit to schools, legacy preference is a school's lifeblood. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, July 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topsher, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. 